Hey, Corey, we've talked a lot about affordability on the podcast and I've covered a lot of challenges across the country. That's right. And, and we've talked about the idea that with challenges that are so far reaching, the ways to address them are many and varied. With so much going on, it would be really great if someone would consolidate all those grassroots efforts. And maybe make a contest or a prize to identify some of the most innovative solutions? Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Wouldn't it also be nice um, and maybe a coincidence if someone in charge of such a prize just happened to be sitting with us in the studio today? That would be nice. And maybe more than just a coincidence. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenloss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability, which is now in its second year of recognizing innovative work in finance, policy, and design and construction. And we'll cover some of the winners and lessons from the 2019 edition, and then look forward to the 2020 award. So we are fortunate today to be joined by Kent Colton, president of the Colton Housing Group and senior research fellow at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. So Kent is also the chairman of the advisory board for the Ivory Prize. So it's just part of the selection committee for the prize winners. So Kent, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Kent, before we get into the winners and lessons from the first year of the prize, can you give us some background on the prize and what it seeks to accomplish? Clark Ivory, who is the CEO of Ivory Homes, gave me a call a few years back, really just in the first part of 19 or 2018 and uh, said, there's a lot going on related to housing affordability that people don't know about. And at the same time, there's a great challenge out there as far as shortage of housing and lots of things that are happening. I'm thinking about setting up a ivory prize, if you will, uh, related to housing affordability. What do you think? And, and we began to talk and realized that uh, there really is a lot going on. And it would be interesting if he was willing to provide the resources, and he was, to really make this happen, uh, to go out and see what's happening. And I don't think anybody really knew what we would find and how much we would find, but decided that it really would to go, be good to go to the grassroots and to see who's doing what. And maybe it's not going to solve the issue of housing affordability, but it will certainly enlighten us. So when did you announce the first... Uh you know, first entries, and, and how did you go about sort of getting applicants uh, and getting people excited about it? The, the Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability was actually announced in uh, September of 2018. And, and then we went out and, and basically asked people to, you know, apply, if you will, by December 15th, uh, 2018. And, and it was uh, wonderfully successful in terms of the number of applications and what happened. But it, it, it really sort of was in a fairly short time period in terms of when it got announced and, and what really began to happen. And you look across different categories of it in terms of where innovation is happening. Is that right? We, we decided you, you can't just sort of, you got to divide it. And so the three categories were construction and design, finance, and then the whole regulatory reform slash policy area interacting with the public sector. Mm -hmm. and, and you had a number of applicants the first time. We, we were very pleased that we had 126 applicants from 28 different states and the District of Columbia. And, uh, and, and if you look at a map, it really shows that those applicants really did come from across the country in a lot of 
different places. And interestingly enough, if you try to relate that map to where the housing affordability challenges are the greatest, there's an interesting overlap. Not surprising that a lot of the applicants came from California where the, it's, it's a real crisis, but certainly from other areas of the country where there are lots of problems. Because that's where the innovation is going on. So uh, let's talk about some of the lessons from from the first year, and, and also maybe before we get into that, just sort of the range of applicants. Do you see smaller firms, larger firms, uh, and, and what were they looking at? Most of the firms were smaller, uh, and a number of companies that were startups, but there were certainly some larger institutions that have been around a long time that that applied for the prize, and and some that had a certainly a kind of a five or 10 year track record and some that only had a track record of, of one or two. But it was, again, it was an interesting mix and, and one that was very pleasing in terms of we didn't know what to expect. And, and so uh, I think we discovered that there is a lot happening at the grassroots level and there's a lot of innovation and some of it is bigger companies, but a lot of it is just people that are really trying to grapple with what's going on and say, how can we try to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And some of, uh, some of the things that we talk about is that there's a shortage of housing. Uh, were there examples of ones that were successful in creating additional housing? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh -huh. uh, but, but you know, just for a moment, it is worth recognizing there is a shortage of housing. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been involved in this industry for many years, and, and this is the only times kind of coming out of the Great Recession since World War II, where there's been a shortage of housing like this. So it's really unique, and it, it compiles itself. I mean, the Freddie Mac chief economist talked about an annual shortage of 370,000 units. That's, that's a really big number when you think that, uh, you know, we just did a, a million 250,000 housing starts, you know, was the numbers for the month of September. And you think about 350, I mean, that's, gigantic in terms of what's going on and it's cumulative. So there's a real problem. So let's talk about some of the uh, some of those innovative solutions you saw. Let's start on the supply side. So, so what were you seeing there? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's it's interesting to note that of the construction and design, because that's really supply side, 46% uh, of the applications came out of that. And the other interesting thing is that nine out of 10 of those were what I would refer to as applications related to modular or factory built housing, um, where, where people are really trying to think about how can you increase the supply of housing and do it in a way that is quicker and more efficient, and at the same time uh, to try to do it in a way that will bring the cost of housing down. And so that was probably the, the main factor that was involved in that. And I think that from, from what I see in the winners, I mean, a lot of people are talking about this in the industry right now. Um, you actually get to see people where units are created, right? That they've right. actually been successful in doing this. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, it, it's, there's been a lot of talk about we ought to be able to build houses in a better way for a long time. Um, but there's been a lot more talk and a lot less action in terms of what's really happened. Um, and some of that is because now the technology is different, and I think there really are some really creative things that are going on in terms of what can be built in the factory and 
how you can do that. And, and we've really learned from, you know, that, that if you can mass produce something, I mean, you look at how much an, I, an iPhone was or, you know, mobile phone when it started a few years back and how the costs have gone down and how we've been able to produce a better product for less cost. You say, why can't we do that in houses? Now, there are lots of reasons that we can't, but, but the reality is, is the foundation has been laid by what's happened in other industries. And so the question is, can that be applied to housing? And so that's what a lot of the innovation was trying to do to, to look at that. And, and the winner in that space was Factory OS, I guess. And is it, and it looked like, I saw the headline, I don't know much about it, but that they said that they got something built in 10 days. That is remarkable. Well, they really got it assembled in 10 huh. days. Okay. Uh, it's, it's built in a factory and it can mm -hmm. be built a lot quicker than it would be because you've got an environment where you don't have to worry about wind, rain, you know, lots of things that might be happening out there. But then you have to go and assemble it and, and it's the assembly that gets done in a 10-day period. They're, they're just in the final stages of, of building a place in Oakland, California, and there'll be 156 units as a part of that. And uh, it, it has been assembled in a very short period of time. And, and because you can do that, it saves money. A, a lot of the cost of construction is time because usually you have to borrow money to build the houses that you're going to build. And if you have borrow it less, then you keep the finance costs down, the construction finance costs down. And at the same time, if you can build a, a better product or certainly a quality product, uh, then then it can make a difference. So the idea is if you can build it faster and 30% of the cost, then that may make a difference over time. Now what they're doing is multifamily housing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's fair to say that uh, it, it's easier to do and to apply this kind of technology in the multifamily area, I think, over time than it is in the single family area. But, but they are making a difference mm -hmm. in, in what is a high cost area where they're, they're They've got one factory in California and they're going to, you know, they're producing now or adding a second factory in terms of what they're doing. And I think they're an example of what's going on. Yeah, that, that's fantastic that you know, it can be done quickly. It can be done, it can be done cheaper. So do you see this as a part of the industry that, that's likely to scale up a lot in, in a fairly short time? It, maybe. <laughs> I mean, to be perfectly candid, uh, there are a lot of reasons that make it tough to do that. And the biggest reason is housing isn't like phones. Uh, you don't just produce them and sell them. In order to do housing, you have to own the land. And in order to build a house on the land, you have to have approval of that, and you have to go through a lot of regulatory barriers. And, and a lot of the costs related to housing come from you know, the regulatory barriers that local communities oftentimes put up. Uh, for a whole variety of different reasons. And, and, and then they also require to just sort of meeting the requirements of building codes. And building codes are different in California than they are in Detroit. And they're different uh, in the Midwest and in a rural community than, than they are in a, in a big city. And so you've got a lot of reasons that housing isn't like a lot of manufacturing. And that's why you've never been able to sort of produce a sort of a, 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 you know, a, a factory-built housing and then ship it to Des Moines, Iowa and be able to do it, make it work. 
So you've got to overcome those kinds of barriers as well as the technology barriers. So that's a great example on the multifamily side. Curious, and you mentioned that this is maybe a little more challenging on the single family side. What have you seen there? Well, it is a little bit more challenging because there you've got smaller units and, and the question is how far are you going to have to shift those factory built houses and a lot of other things that are related to that. So I think it's going to take longer to really bring modular construction to the single family area. But, but another finalist in the construction and design area was Indiedwell and it's Boise, Idaho. And, and it's an interesting illustration because what they're doing is they're taking containers that are already built that have been done for shipping and they're turning those into single family housing. And they've had some interesting success in terms of being able to do that. And it's, uh, it's environmentally sensitive because you already built that project and, and you sort of helping the ecosystem by not having to sort of build something else. But then you're able to put them together and stack them and, and make them uh, very effective sort of single family housing. And, and it's just another illustration of what's going on in terms of design in the, in the construction area. Yeah, and the container uh, housing is really interesting because it, you know, it's something that is so mundane looking and, and something that is so standardized that to make it attractive is, is really interesting uh, architecturally to, to make that work. That's right. And, and, and you can, when you stack them and put them together, uh, you can have a lot of creativity in terms of the way it looks and, and, and uh, it can go in an urban area or it can go in a much more rural area and uh, depending on the environment and what you want to do. And so Indie Dwells had quite a bit of success, but there are lots of others that are out there. When I talked about, you know, 46% of the applicants, you know, related to modular, but, but those are good illustrations of it. And so I can imagine, you know, it is a new form of construction, um, and, and a new form of, of uh, putting housing in place. You mentioned some barriers uh, on the multifamily side. Do you see, do you see that on the uh, regulatory barriers? Do you see that on the single-family side as well? Uh, yes. And, the, and, the, and the, if you're in a place like California and you want to do multifamily housing, and they have to, obviously, to try to meet the housing needs, you can begin to get people to think about maybe we need to tear down those barriers. It's oftentimes tougher to do at the single family level. And there are so many, you know, local communities and so many different uh, regulatory factors related to that. But even there, that is beginning to happen. And there are some interesting things that, that I think are coming up now and will continue to come up. That's a lot of interesting um, development in the modular space. Uh, are there lessons that you learned in other segments? There were. When we, we sort of tried to step back at the end when we were looking at all the applicants and to say, you know, are, are there some lessons that would give us some thoughts on how we deal with or address the issue of housing affordability? And we ended up sort of identifying five. Um, the, the first one we've really been talking about it is to increase housing construction through innovation and technology to both faster increase productivity and lower costs. A second area was to preserve and produce affordable housing in neighborhoods, really building on the people and the strengths of that community. And a lot of that has to do with rehabilitation. Um, a third area is to utilize creative finance approaches, which would allow um, more people, if you will, to be able to qualify for a mortgage and buy a home and to build more affordable rental housing. Um, 
Fourth area is innovative use of lots and existing housing to provide greater housing opportunities to meet the nation's housing demand and to increase income for homeowners. If, if we have a supply problem and if we have a shortage of housing, then how can we use the existing housing that we've got more effectively, whether it's land or whether it's housing itself to create more housing? And then fifth, how do you remove regulatory barriers at the local, state, and federal level, but especially, quite frankly, at the local level to allow more homes and apartments to be built and to reduce the time and cost of building. So those, those are sort of five directions if you're trying to say, well, what do we do to address housing affordability? I think you can look at the applicants from the Ivory Prize and say, well, they're going on out there and, and maybe they will help everybody think a little bit about how can we tackle this problem. So we, we did talk about uh, some of the innovation on the construction side. Exactly. So, so maybe uh, we can move on to the, your second point about neighborhoods and, and rehab. Right. Okay. Well, well, there I think it, it really is interesting because some of the applicants, and I can just mention uh, sort of three, I guess, very quickly in terms of what was going on there. Uh, one was Century Partners, and, and they worked in Detroit, and they were really trying to look at that local community and say, how can we look at the existing housing and decide rehabbing some of it, tearing down some of it, and building new, and at the same time, tearing down some of it and doing open space to make it a more livable community. And, and they really did work with the community closely. And, and interesting things, uh, at one point they hired over 40 of the residents to help clean up the you know, people that were already living in that neighborhood to kind of perform lawn maintenance, do internal demolition, to uh, do clearing of lots and to sort of do that. And if, if, if those people proved to be good workers, they actually hired them to help build the new construction or to do rehabilitation. So it was really a neighborhood-oriented venture. Uh, Washington, D.C., Housing Finance Agency, tried to think about, you know, what's a development form to really produce workforce housing? And, and it was really, again, at a, a sort of a smaller scale in terms of what they were doing, but they clearly put together a community development form that made a difference. And then at the larger scale, you know, we discovered that, uh, you know, and this is really in the finance area, but Turner Impact Capital had really been very successful overall to, to sort of uh, put together a, a really effective equity fund you know, $264 million and to really try to develop workforce housing all around the country. But again, trying to do it at what worked at a neighborhood level. Right. And, and, and we're very successful in terms of doing that. Yeah. And we've heard that, uh, I mean, I think the work that they do creates a lot of stability in the community, which I'm sure is similar to what happened in Detroit in, 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 in the project there. That's, that's right. And, and really, if, especially if you focus at the workforce level. Yeah. People that are the, you know, the policemen, the firemen, the teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, you, we had talked about financing with Turner Impact Capital. I believe there was a, a lease-to-own product as well on the financing side? There was, uh, and, and that's just an illustration of that. Mm -hmm. There were two interesting models that kind of rose to the top and were finalists and winners related to the finance and the Ivory Prize. One was really it's called the lease to own. And, and the, the person who succeeded and, and, and won in that area was Home Partners of America. 
they're, they're based in Chicago, but they've really purchased over 12,000 homes around the country. It's an interesting model. They go out and find people who would like to be homeowners, but, but can't afford to do it yet, and, and may not even have the credit rating to do it. But they say, you go to a realtor and work with these realtors that we work with, and, and buy the house that you'd like to eventually own. And, and, and then we'll, you know, we'll buy it for you. <laughs> we'll be the buyers, if you will. The, they're not going to buy the house, but they're going to say, let's live in this house. You be the renter, and you have five years to basically lease that house and then eventually become the owner of that house. And they've had over, a, out of that 1,200 houses that they've basically leased, bought and then leased, they've had over a thousand homeowners that have done all around the country in terms of what they've done in 40 different metropolitan markets. So that's the kind of lease to own. The, the other is the shared equity model, and that was a company by the name of Landed in, in California. And uh, they were working in nor Northern California. They said, let's work with teachers. We talk about workforce housing. But, but their model is to say, and in California, Mortgages are very expensive. And, and so we'll, we'll put up 50% of the down payment. And for that, we want 25% of the equity of that house when that owner refinances it or, in fact, sells it. And, and, and that's what they've done. And it's been a very successful model. And landed, interestingly enough, just came to Washington, DC. And, and they're going to apply that model in Washington, D.C., again, working for, with teachers and, uh, and, and school districts. And I watched your video, I think, a real nice video about the winners, and it looked like the founder of, of Landed was the son of teachers? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. And really, I mean, he really sort of said, I want to make a difference in respect to the affordable housing space. How can we do that? And, and he sort of thought of all of the teachers out there who you know, we're earning a solid income, but quite frankly, oftentimes not, to, not enough to buy a house, especially if you live in a high-cost area. So you talked about uh, also among your five, uh, five lessons, five categories, was uh, innovative use of lots. So yes. let's talk about an example there. It, the, 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 the illustration of that, the, the winner was a group called Alley Flat. But, but what it is, it's about you know, accessory dwelling units. And it is a perfect illustration. The category is how do we take our existing land and use it more effectively to get more housing? So the notion of, of an accessory dwelling unit is, is you allow, and you have to change in many cases the zoning to do this, but you allow somebody to say, I want to put up a, a small house, if you will, an accessory dwelling unit. And it might be anywhere from 500 square feet to 1,000 square feet. But, but more than enough for a small family, family or uh, somebody's parents. Uh, they're oftentimes called granny flats. And, and grandparents can live in them. And, and it's a part of an extended family issue. Or they can you know, put it up and then rent it. And it allows them to live in the house they've got because they're getting some extra income. And Alley Flat in Austin, Texas, said, you know, if we're going to do that, we're going to need to change the rules, the regulations, if you will. And they were very effective at going out and, 
getting the city council to buy the idea that if we had some accessory dwelling units, some alley flats, uh, especially in areas where they had alleys and they could actually have that alley flat sort of border on where the alley was, <laughs> and, and, and they could have access to it there and, and, and so forth. And so they were able to do that. So they, they, so they were one of the regulatory winners because they were able to change the regulatory rules. And then they have a system whereby they would help people build those alley flats or those accessory dwelling units in Austin, Texas. And they've been very successful at it. You know, this you know, reminds me a little bit of you know, my time in college and after in, in New England, where the housing stock was, you know, just had essentially accessory dwelling units built into them because they, so many of the homes were larger that had been carved up. And so you'd have, uh, you know, the owner living in one part of the house and renting out, uh, renting out others. Uh, so where'd you go to college? Uh, I was at Brown. At Brown. Yeah. So, so let me give you an illustration, if you don't mind, of, of another company that did that in Boston. And, and they're called Nesterly, but, but they, they were sort of trying to say in those kind of houses, because there are a lot of triple-deckers in Boston or a lot of houses that have extra, extra room, and they said, okay, we've got a lot of students in Boston all over, and, and, and if we can match students with senior citizens who, who have extra space, then that may bring an in income to the senior citizens and provide housing for the for the students, and they did that. That's what Nesterly is, and they used a computer platform to match students who are looking for housing with senior citizens who wanted to rent. And, and the extra benefit is not only did they bring in income to those senior citizens, but they brought them company, students who could live in their house, and then the students in turn were able to, to do that. So it's, it's been a very successful model, and now they're taking that model, that platform, if you will, to other areas around the country. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And it fits to what you were saying when you were a student. That's why I just <laughs> yeah, sort of, I, I just couldn't resist. Because <laughs> all of a sudden I thought, wow, that's uh -huh. an illustration of <laughs> what Corey is talking about. Yeah, that is fantastic. And were there other localities that are, that are notable in what they've done? Uh, you know, in terms of sort of trying to utilize space? Yeah. Um, or on the regulatory side? Uh, I was thinking on the regulatory side. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, on the regulatory side, one of the interesting illustrations was uh, Buncombe County in North Carolina. Now, you don't know where Buncombe County is, but, but you've probably heard of Asheville. Yep. And, and Asheville is, is a, is a it's, it's both a college community, but it's also a second home community in, in the western part of, of North Carolina. And, and, and the They've been very innovative in, in Buncombe County because basically what they've tried to do is they've tried to say, look, we have second homes that are coming in, that's driving up the cost. We have students that are coming and they also have a way of driving up the cost for the people that are living here. What can we do to, to uh, provide workforce housing, workplace housing for sort of the middle of the road, the people that are go, being sort of forced out by the other houses that are going up. And, and they really, they've done an interesting job where they, they did a sort of a three-part effort, if you will. Um, one was to uh, provide loans and grants that would be helpful for people who want to buy the housing. And, and some of this is for multifamily housing as well, just sort of small apartments that might be going up. Secondly, said, what can we do to change the zoning? And in basically, 
for almost all of Buncombe County, they've done away with single family zoning and said you now can do duplexes or triplexes um, to be able to, you know, on that existing space, be able to put more housing. So you can double or triple the amount of housing that, that might be available in terms of doing that. And then the, the third part was really to, to figure out some creative ways where if people will do greater density, and this gets to the multifamily side, then, then we'll give them a bonus, if you will, as far as density bonuses in their zoning. So then instead of putting up five units, they can put up 10 units or 15 units because they're, they're going to do that. And, and some of those will be more affordable in terms of what they're doing. So Buncombe County was one of the, the 10 finalists in that regulatory area. So the, the, the example in Asheville is interesting because the, I think a lot of people don't think of these you know, towns that are destinations for tourists and, and the workforce folks that, that need to work there. Um, as, you think of, as, as you saw other applicants, were there other innovative things in local areas that people may not think about? Yeah, let me, let me try to sort of, in answering that, tie it to the first area we talked about, construction and design, and especially on the modular side to the regulatory side. Um, one of the issues with respect to modular housing is, you know, people aren't used to it. It's not the normal house that you're putting up or the normal apartment. And so they don't match what the regulatory rules are, whether it's building codes or whether other kinds of things. And, and, and an architecture company in Seattle sort of recognized that. They've got a real sort of housing affordability problem in Seattle. And they said, you know, if, if we could put together a recipe book for municipalities who wanted to try to bring in some more affordable housing that would in fact cost less and be quicker to build because it could be built in a factory and then bought to that community, what, what could they do in a regulatory sense to make that possible? And so the Jackson, Maine, architectural firm is putting together that recipe book. And that for us was very intriguing when we were looking at all the Ivory Prize things, because you know, if, if you can help local communities figure out what they need to do in order to bring in more affordable housing, that could make a difference in terms of not just one community, but multiple communities. Yeah, and that, that's really interesting. And I would like to understand, so that, that seems like a good segue to uh, what you're seeing going forward. So you just uh, finished off the first round of, of prizes, uh, 2019. You're about to uh, close, is it, uh, close the submissions for 2020? What, are you in, what do you anticipate seeing in the next round? Well, we're not ready to close them. We're, we're, <laughs> but we've, got, we've got some room. Right. <laughs> we don't close the applicants until December 15th. So Anybody that's out there, mm -hmm. can I put in a plug? Absolutely. <laughs> Please <Right>. do. <laughs> Anybody that's out there who hasn't heard about the Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability, go to Ivory Innovations. You know, go, go look on the internet and you'll be able to see. And it's a pretty easy application process. And there really is a lot of innovations that are going on. So people have until the 15th of December to make their applications. And, and so we've got a little bit of time and, and would like to encourage that. But, but what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, a lot of interest. And again, a lot of interesting innovations uh, in, in, the, you know, in the construction design, in the finance, and in the regulatory side. But, but I will say this on the regulatory side. Um, 
there have been some interesting things that have been happening out there where people are looking at zoning ordinances and other kinds of things. So we're going to be doing uh, a program in Boston, you know, on the, on the 15th of November, where we're going to get together all of the finalists. But, but we're going to also kind of wrap up that program, kind of leading out of the regulatory, with uh, people that are going to represent Oregon and represent Minneapolis, because both of those uh, state in one case and municipality in the other cases have, have kind of done away with single family zoning. And it's very innovative and it's getting a lot of attention. So we're gonna bring them in. And, and part of doing that is to encourage the municipalities to A, be innovative in terms of what they do, and, and B, to if they're doing something interesting, apply you know, for the Ivory Prize, because we got, that was the smallest area in terms of the number of applicants uh, in 2018. And in 2019 and 20, we'd love to have more applicants in the, in the regulatory area, because we think that's an area where state and local governments can really lead the way in terms of making a big difference. You know, literally, for single family housing, 25% of the costs have to do with regulatory constraints. In multifamily, 32% of the cost. Those are both studies that have been done by the National Association of Home Builders. So there's room for improvement. Uh, and, and I think a lot of, you know, municipalities are realizing that we really do want to provide housing for our workforce. We do want to try to make a difference. And so we hope that will be an area where we might see more applicants going forward. All right. And, and again, the deadline, December 15th, there's still time. <laughs> still time, December 15th. And, and it's a very simple application process. Uh, you know, if you go to Ivory Innovations um, and, and look for the Ivory Prize, um, you know, it, it's something that you can do. And then we have people that can help you fill that application out, um, you know, in terms of, of doing that. So great. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, really excited to see uh, see all of the, the winners and the, and the submissions and talk about it with you and looking forward to seeing what comes in the next round. One last thing I'd just like to mention is that uh, Clark Ivory, who is, of course, the founder of the Ivory Prize and the Ivory Homes is the largest builder in Utah, uh, has really focused on the notion of innovation. And he sort of summed it up in a really nice way. He said, America is suffering with a housing affordability crisis. Through the Ivory Prize process, we've learned that a key part of the prescription is innovation, one step at a time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.